we followed people over a year. And what we basically found was if people started meaningful activities, work, training, any form of structured meaningful activities, three things happened. Their physical quality of life went up, their psychological quality of life went up, and their overall quality of life went up. If they stopped meaningful activities, all of those things went down. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Good day and welcome to another episode of From Darkness to Life in Our Collective Journey podcast. I am joined in the studio by my good friend Ryan Oscar. Good morning. I'm very excited to have this guest on today. Um, previously, we had been invited, Ryan and I, to speak, and Damien actually, to speak at the National Recovery Summit here. Well, not here, it was in Calgary. And uh, one of the main keynote speakers at that event was uh, Dr. David Best. Now, probably the most qualified person we've ever had. Uh, I'm gonna try. <laughs> I'm gonna try to uh, get get all of your credentials in here in the introduction. But uh, Dr. David Best, PhD, Professor of Criminology in the Department of Law and Criminology at Sheffield Hallam University, Visiting Associate Professor of Addiction Studies in. Monash University, Melbourne. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and and the and the list goes on and on and on with his credentials and education and uh, and all of the amazing things he did. And and so we we we're very humbled to have him on. We know he's uh, he's literally a world renowned uh, specialist when it comes to this stuff. So we were actually just talking kind of before we started. And what was really really encouraging to us um, was you know me and Ryan and Damien when we sat down and started this OCGA thing. We kind of thought we'd come up, you know, and, and like I said, in the typical addict alcoholic mindset, we thought we, uh, we thought we created something new and unique and special. And then we get to this conference and it's the same language that all the academics are, are talking about. And so it was really vindicating for us. Um, but with no further ado, I'd really just like to turn this over to Dr. Best and let him, uh, kind of provide the Coles notes of what he presented at that conference. Cause I found it absolutely fascinating. Oh, well, perfect. And thank you so much, gentlemen, for such a kind introduction. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a little bit of my own background, and then I'll say a bit about the history of recovery research. Uh, I'll say a bit about where we are and what we know about recovery. And then I'm going to talk about some models and studies and theories as, uh, as I go forward. And by all means, stop me, interrupt me and, and ask questions or make comments as we go. So I will talk for 20 minutes or so, I guess, uh, but feel free to add or, 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 or contribute as you see fit. So, um, David Best uh, is my name. Um, I have worked in the addictions field for just around 30 years now, just over 30 years. Uh, I did my training uh, initially in Glasgow and then at the Institute of Psychiatry in London, where I trained as a research psychologist. Um, and I did all the usual stuff that people do in that world. So I ran randomized control trials of naloxone and naltrexone as agents for heroin detox. I ran a, a randomized clinical trial of waiting times, and I was involved in a whole range of projects and activities and initiatives. 
And there was a very close relationship at that time between the Institute of Psychiatry and the Department of Health in London. So we did a lot of work that was directly influential on policy. But I was extremely dissatisfied with what we did. We were supposedly a treatment centre of excellence, but not many people seemed to get much better. There was an awful lot of people who were on methadone doses who'd been on them for a long, long time. Um, and there was a bit of a revolving door in our residential programs. People would come in and out of alcohol detox, heroin detox, and very rarely was there any indication of significant change. And it struck me as particularly dramatic, and, and I think it's a big challenge for policymakers. But frequently we end up with kind of two worlds. We end up with a treatment clinical world that does some good things, undoubtedly helps to keep people alive, keeps them safe, improves various aspects of their lives. But they quite often is entirely disconnected, as it was in South London, from the recovery world. And the recovery world is a world of hope, vibrancy. Um, and one of the things that I will come back to time and time again is the, for me, the core mantra of what determines what's a successful recovery project. And it goes by the name of CHIME. And it originally comes from the mental health field. And CHIME stands for connectedness, hope, identity, meaning, and empowerment. And the idea here is that um, all recovery journeys start with positive social connections. Uh, and I, I, I would argue that in the nearly 3,000 recovery stories I've collected, not one of the people has ever done it on their own. It always requires the catalyst and the inspiration of somebody else, usually somebody else in recovery. And uh, the, the great guru in our field is a man called William White. And for anyone who's not familiar with his work, I'd strongly recommend you look up William White papers on the internet. And uh, it's an incredible encyclopedia of what we know and where we are around recovery stuff. Um, I know like we're from, from our end, um, we are, our organization is primarily, uh, you know, we found sobriety through the 12 step programs, various 12 step programs. Um, but I've often said, you know, I think recovery for us from all of the different people that we've crossed paths with and all of the communications we've had. Um, the key to recovery, you know, as, as much as an advocate for the 12 steps as I am, it really comes down to two simple things, I think, and that's finding a community and finding purpose. I think with those absolutely. two key pieces, um, recovery is achievable. Yeah, absolutely. And Chime kind of would fulfill that. So Chime stands for connectedness, which generates hope. And that offers people identity, a positive sense of identity, meaningful activities. And as you say, that sense of purpose is so important. And that in turn creates a sense of empowerment. And much of my work has really fed into this. And one of the things that I think is hugely encouraging and optimistic from a recovery science point of view is that there, there is a very strong evidence base for 12 step. There's a much weaker evidence base for other forms of peer-based recovery support services, but that's really because we haven't really reached the point of doing those studies the biggest evidence base comes from studies of Alcoholics Anonymous and to a slightly lesser extent, Narcotics Anonymous. But essentially, what we have is an evidence base that says if you actively and effectively engage in 12-step groups, and that means more than just sitting at the back and sneaking out as soon as the <laughs> meeting finishes, and I'm sure you're familiar, and it's even more of a problem 
uh, now in the world of online meetings of mm-hmm. what, what I believe the term is lurkers, people who lurk in online meetings and don't contribute. That has a minor beneficial effect. It's a weak effect. Yeah, what we- else do we know? Well, we've talked uh, um, quite often about how, you know, we'll go into treatment centers and we'll speak about 12-step and, and and typically we'll get in there and, you know, ask around how many people here have tried 12-step and three quarters of the room tr- typically will put up their hand. And then I'll say, okay, well, you know, what did you do? And they well, uh, you know, I went to 90 meetings in 90 days and, uh, and I go, well, good for you. What did you do? <laughs> and they're like, and, and what I often liken it to, uh, you know, the analogy that it was given to me and that I use all the time is it's like going to the gym. You can go to the gym 90 times in 90 days, but you're not going to do a damn thing for your body or your fitness if you just sit in the back and watch, right? You're going to have to get up and you're going to have to pick up some weights and you're going to have to do the work. Yeah. Unfortunately, that experience is much closer to my fitness regime. Um, I quite like the coffee in some of the some of the sports centers and gyms near me. Anyway, moving swiftly on from that. And it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful analogy and perfectly apt. Because um, we talk about recovery as being contagious. But the contagion requires that whole process of meaning, purpose, activity. That, and they are the things that generate that sense of positive identity and empowerment, not happening to be, not being in the same room as other people who do it. Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, among the other things we, we, we now have pretty good evidence for is that 12-step group attendance works at least as well as the best professional treatments. But... Where people go to both mutual aid groups and go to professional treatment, there is additive value. There is clear benefit, better than either or. <clears throat> and we've just finished a large uh, outcome study in Scotland, England, Belgium, and the Netherlands, where it shows really clearly that people whose recovery journey involves at least one peer-based recovery support service have lower justice involvement stronger social networks, and better engagement in community groups. And when Rudolf Moose did some work a number of years ago, he argued that two of the core components of of what happens in recovery, which are very clear uh, about 12-step groups, is the first is social learning. How do people recover? They do it by copying other folk who've already done it. And this is the basic principle of attraction. We get recovery by looking at other people and thinking, I have what they want and copying what they do and getting the same things that they do. But the 12-step groups do something that's much more subtle as well. They, the, the second mechanism that Rudolf Moose talked about was social control, which sounds slightly sinister, but, but really isn't. I mean, what he meant by that was, if you want to join a club, there are rules about being members of that club. The rules include that you engage in certain kinds of behaviors, activities, attitudes, values, and that as you do that, so you internalize them. And that part of the, the whole 12-step process is acculturation and internalization of the norms and values of the 12 steps. And, and people become part of a group that they value and they don't want to jeopardize the value of the group they belong to, and that's part of the bind. Um, and I think the other thing which my great academic hero is a man called John Braithwaite, who, who talks a lot about global crime reduction. And he talks about global crime reduction basically in terms of collective efficacy and trust in communities. Um, and one of the things he would argue about how 12-step groups work is this constant dynamic process. And here I'm talking about something that I didn't talk about at the conference, so this is a kind of new insight, I think, is that the people with experience 
in 12-step meetings, AA meetings, NA meetings, they have high levels of self-efficacy, unlike people new in their recovery journeys. But the magic is that they translate that into a kind of collective group efficacy. And that collective group efficacy infects or has a contagion to new members. And this whole process of sponsorship combined with the 12th step creates this constant ongoing dynamic between collective efficacy of the group and the individual efficacy of both old and new members. So you have this constant thing that the capability of the group impacts on the capability of new members and it feeds back into the well-being of established older members. And we know that for women especially, the primary mechanism of action of 12-step groups is abstinence self-efficacy, the belief that you are capable of sustaining your own recovery journey. Mm-hmm. And that's, that seems to me particularly important. Now, I normally talk at this stage about facts, and I'm going to slightly change the facts conversation in the light of, of one of the presentations there. So there are... Traditionally, we've kind of worked on the assumption that just over half of the people who have a lifetime substance use disorder will eventually recover. So that just over 50% figure originally comes from a review undertaken by William White, who we mentioned earlier, um, where he admittedly says more recent studies show higher rates. Um, When SAMHSA published their review in 2009, they estimated that 58% of people who have a lifetime substance use disorder will eventually achieve recovery defined as five years of continuous sobriety. And this is good. You know, this is, this is good. Um, John Kelly, who is a, um, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the chair of the Recovery Research Institute, He argued that the current figures from his work are between 62 and 75%. Now, these are astonishing figures. They're still not good enough, because until we we approach 100%, there are far too many people dying. Um, But I think one of the things that we are increasingly trying to convey is that sense that recovery is not just possible, it's probable. And it's really important that how people achieve recovery is primarily through two mechanisms. The first one, undoubtedly, by far the most important, is social contagion. So basically, the transmission of of recovery from one recovering addict to another recovering. And this should be nothing new to you. What role do professionals play in this? Well, their role is a variant on contagion, which is called cascade. And for people like me, My role is to identify things that work and things that are effective and things that are important and transmit ideas, not in the person-to-person sense, but in the broader sense that you talked about right at the start of this podcast of you have ideas, they fit with my ideas, they fit with other people at the conference's ideas. Well, my job is partly about the transmission of those ideas. So among the, I am very lucky, like William White, to kind of be an academic witness of recovery. And I get to look at all kinds of fascinating recovery innovations. So mm-hmm. earlier this week, I was in a fairly deprived area of the northeast of England called Middlesbrough. Um, and while I was in Middlesbrough, I was involved in setting up a building recovery in Middlesbrough program. It is a fabulous <coughs> recovery service called Recovery Connections. 
that runs, among other things, a recovery restaurant called Fork in the Road, uh, next door to which is a recovery florist shop called Blooms. And the day I was up there on Tuesday, they were launching the Fork Academy. So basically, they were launching a 13-week catering program for people who are graduates of their rehab or day program to do training in basic skills around the catering industry, either to work in the recovery restaurant or one of the things they had negotiated was if you complete the course, you will get an automatic interview for McDonald's to work there. Now, I'm not saying anyone's aspirations should be set at McDonald's, but it's a start for people. Um, and what we are also developing there locally is a recovery research and training centre. And one of my big ambitions is to set up training courses that allow people to go from basic recovery awareness courses all the way through to a Masters of Addiction Recovery. And I hope that will be set up within the next year or so, because that sense of meaning and purpose is fabulous, but it has to be diverse. In the northwest of England, there's something called the Well Communities. And in two towns in the northwest, Morecambe and Barrow and Furness, they now have social supermarkets. And what they are is they're run by the recovery community. Every, everyone who works in the recovery community effectively engages with the uh, uh, who works in the supermarkets as part of the recovery community. But the people who use the shop are not. Some of them are in recovery, but it provides a valuable, cheap, healthy set of food options to an impoverished community. Mm -hmm. And this, to me, is absolutely critical. And the stage of recovery science for me is about something that's hugely exciting. We now have a very good evidence base that says 12-step fellowships and peer-based mutual aid is really effective. But it's based on what we would call bonding capital. But the form of social capital involved is addicts talking to addicts. And primarily any benefits more widely to the community are incidental. When we move to starting to look at recovery community organisations, we do something fundamentally different. Here the aim is now much more about how recovery communities become visible, accessible, and contribute to the, the, the well-being of their communities. And I mentioned John Braithwaite earlier, and he is very keen on this idea of saying recovery capital, restorative capital, human capital, and social capital are not like financial capital. When you have financial capital and you spend it, you have less money in the bank at the end. When you have social capital and you use it, or recovery capital and you use it, or human capital and you use it, there is more of it afterwards than there was at the start. It is generative and dynamic. It builds a radius of trust. And for us to be serious about recovery communities impacting on stigma, challenging exclusion, and making a difference, because we know that people who make it to long-term recovery have lots to give back to their community. When we can create those conditions, recovery communities not only support people in recovery, they support the broader community much more effectively. Mm -hmm. Now, from my own work, there was a study that I did. I'm going to just say a little bit about recovery capital and what we mean by that. But it starts in 2009 when I got a grant from the Scottish government to look at what the pathways to recovery were in Glasgow, and we also did the same thing in Birmingham. So it was a combination of people in recovery from heroin addiction and from alcohol addiction. 
And what we found the two biggest predictors of quality of life and well-being in recovery were was um, how much time you spent with other people in recovery and how much time you spent engaged in meaningful activities. And we call this the Goya study after the Spanish painter Francisco Goya. So basically, the single biggest predictor of well-being in recovery was how many hours did you spend in childcare, plus volunteering, plus education, plus training, plus community group activity, plus employment. Goya, Goya stands for get off your arse. <laughs> the more you do, the better you do. And going right back to what you said at the start, it's so important to recognize but just been, been around recovery is not enough. You have to translate that into meaningful activities. And we got challenged about the causal ordering of it. So we then repeated the study in three areas in England. We followed people over a year. And what we basically found was if people started meaningful activities, work, training, any form of structured meaningful activities, three things happened. Their physical quality of life went up their psychological quality of life went up, and their overall quality of life went up. If they stopped meaningful activities, all of those things went down. The causal ordering is really simple. Get off your arse and you feel better about life. Mm -hmm. um, sit down and do nothing and you don't do so well. And it's basically, you know, there's nothing about the enemy of recovery is harm reduction. The enemy of recovery is daytime television. <laughs> uh, it's important that people are active and engaged in meaningful activity. So one of the big things for me about all these percentages, and it doesn't matter which percentage you go for, 50, 58, 62, whatever, however many, whatever the percentage of people that recover, there are two goals for, for me as a kind of recovery scientist and policymaker. One is, how do we push that number up the way? The second is, how do we know who are the people are are going to do well and the people who are not going to do well. Who's going to be in the 58% or sadly in the 42%? And for me, my biggest contribution in the last decade or so has been to start trying to work out how you measure this. And this effectively is what we call the science of recovery capital. And the science of recovery capital is essentially how do we go about quantifying what people have in three broad areas? At the end of that five-year journey to stable recovery, there are really, I guess, five, probably a few more, but five core internal qualities we want people to build up. Self-esteem, self-efficacy, coping skills, resilience skills, and communication skills. That's like the, the, the group of internal things. And if you were in a traditional specialist treatment center, they would try and talk those things into you through CBT or through solution-focused therapy or through motivational interview, whatever. But that's not how a recovery model works. The idea of how you build up those internal qualities is through both social capital and community capital. By changing your social networks from people supportive of substance use to people supportive of recovery, and by effectively engaging in community resources and assets that allow you to engage in things that give your life meaning. Now, every recovery journey is individual, not only to the extent that every person will differ in the recovery journey, but also what people's needs are will change over the course of the recovery journey. And it doesn't end in some point where they say, I'm done now. It then just becomes a journey of human flourishing, a, a journey of human growth. And essentially, for me, 
The challenge is effectively how do you create the conditions that allow people to develop those support networks and to, to be allowed access to the resources and communities that give people the time and space to develop those internal characteristics. And in studies we've done, we've, we've tended to group the community resources into recovery-specific, employment, training, and education, sport and recreation, art, religion, and volunteering and community participation. Um, but there's different ways of slicing that up. The whole point is people will, will need multiple identities and multiple activities to support their recovery journey. And one of the things that we've shown is, so we did the, the Glasgow Goya study in 2009. Eight years later, we repeated it in recovery residences in Florida, exactly the same thing. People who stay in recovery residences who don't do very much will show reductions in barriers to recovery. They'll show reductions in unmet needs. But if they use that time to engage in meaningful activities, you will get significant boosts and increases in personal capital, social capital, and community capital. And one of the big things that I now am trying to do is to kind of start evidencing how do those communities of recovery contribute to an impact on the communities they're based in? Because my hypothesis and my the, the thing that I'm working most on at the moment is trying to identify how their activities create these contagions of hope, not just to the recovery community, but to the broader community. And it's part of a political argument that effectively says, if we want recovery to succeed, it will not only benefit people in recovery and their families and their neighbours, it will benefit the entire community because recovery is not a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. It's not about going back to where you started from. It's about that journey of hope and growth over time. And just to kind of conclude, for me, the fundamental challenge, we know that what happens in recovery journeys is that people will typically, when they stop using, have a grace honeymoon period. And then there'll be a little bit of a dip when they realize that all, all is not well and some of those pre-existing problems and challenges and trauma still exist. And John Kelly used a lovely um, metaphor of a burning building. So his argument was specialist treatment services are kind of like the fire brigade. They'll come along, they'll um, put out the fire, they'll sling people over their shoulders and carry them out of the house. And the people carried out of the house will be so grateful they're still alive and they're, 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 they've not died. They'll be, they'll be ecstatic about that happening. But the problem is that um, you know they'll then have to go back in the next morning and all their stuff is ruined, the house is full of smoke, and there'll be a significant dip. The recovery community and the recovery journey is about the rebuilding of the inside and the outside of the house and strengthening and growing the house and making the house a better place than it was before the fire started. And for me, that's the one of the most fundamental things about the whole process of recovery. It's a social journey that takes place over time whose destination is much better than the starting point. And I think one, for, just to conclude, there are some fundamental differences about the philosophy of treatment and the philosophy of recovery. Mm -hmm. The philosophy of treatment is basically about saying, let's list all the problems you have in life and we'll see what we can do to reduce the harm or reduce the salience or significance or pain of them. 
it, it predicated in the notion that there is an expert in the clinical setting who will manage and, and guide or choreograph that process. And the assumption is that if it goes perfectly to plan, the person will kind of be back to a non-addicted state. Contrast that with the recovery philosophy and model. The recovery model starts from the assumption we build strengths, we don't address pathologies. The starting point is strength-based, socially focused, meaningful activity focused. It doesn't happen in a clinic. It happens in the community. It doesn't end at some kind of neutral zero point. It ends with human flourishing and growth and meaningful contribution. And it doesn't, it's not about a diseased body. It's about how people relate and engage and how effectively they are engaged in the resources that exist in their local communities. The whole model of recovery is a fundamental paradigm shift. And it's a phrase that's used far too often, but a fundamental paradigm shift away from deficit control, management, medication, big pharma, to self-determination, human flourishing and growth. Hopefully that's been of some interest and use. I've still got a couple of minutes if you've got any comments or questions. Well, um, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a very popular, very busy man. Um, what I would like to, you know, briefly bring up is, is that is our focus here at, at our collective journey. Our, the town that we live in is approximately 60,000 people. And, and, uh, you know, it's almost like recovery has been a four letter word here. We've been shunned a little <laughs> bit for using it. And, yes. uh, and we are very purposefully trying to one, you know, change the face from addiction to a face of, of recovery. Um, just demonstrate that, you know, one recovery is possible because it's ironic to me that we still have that argument with some, some people and some professionals that it's even possible. Um, you know, when I, when I stand in front of people and they go, well, you, you know, you're, you're, you're always going to be sick. I'm like, well, I don't feel sick anymore. <laughs> like the evidence is standing right in front of you. But, um, I think, you know, what you touched on with the community, I think that's what we're really trying to create here. I think we have a unique opportunity and, and the support of the government yeah. and the, and the city and, and the region that we have. Um, I, you know, I think that's our next goal at, the, at our collective journeys to really focus on turning our community into, you know, the recovery community that you're talking about and, and try to model some of that. And, and I'm, I'm hoping, um, you know, you're available to help us consult on some of that and potentially come back again as, as a guest. Cause honestly, I could listen to you talk for hours. It's, it's absolutely fascinating hey, to me. Don't tempt me. I am perfectly capable of talking <laughs> for hours. Um, my, sadly, my son won't be happy if he doesn't get his dinner fairly soon, but yeah, I'd be more than delighted to come back. And look, it seems to me like, this is a big a tipping point or transition point for recovery. I think we now are doing pretty well at understanding how do people recover. And there's, you know, the answer has always been, since the 1930s, has been there for at least one group of people. What we're now able to do, I think, is start answering that much broader question of how can we make those recovery communities relevant? Mm -hmm. And how can we make, make sure that it's not just about that kind of inward-facing, anonymous, hidden population to something that has that as an absolutely central plank of recovery, but also has an outward-facing component that's about giving back contribution, active engagement, community participation. So absolutely, I think this is a, it's not that that's not happened for a long time. It's, I think the salience of that and the science of that 
is now beginning to grow kind of inexorably. So it's a it's a really exciting time for people involved in any of this work. And I, I, I'd be absolutely delighted to come back and speak to you again, gentlemen. So thank you so much for your time. And I hope that's been of some benefit and value to you. Thank you very much. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. That guy is just absolutely brilliant, eh? Oh, my goodness, right? He, uh, I've listened to him speak now twice at that convention and read a lot of his research papers, right? We talked about that prior, right? We've based some of our recent stuff on his research and to sit and talk with that man and just hear his wisdom around the recovery model and recovery capital and recovery communities and stuff and know that that's kind of the path we've been on for the last year and a half. We just really didn't know that we had the academic world behind us. That's yeah. And, and, and it's, it is crazy, right? Cause you know, it's, it's no secret to anybody that's listened to more than one episode. Um, the 12 step model is for sure the foundation of, of what we do, but you know, we, we realized, um, it's not just that, right. It's, uh, I've seen a lot of people come and commit themselves to the 12 step program and, and achieve success. Like you talked about, right. It's almost like that fire. That's a really good analogy with the burning house, I think. Yeah. Um, but if you don't address the under, you know, some of the other stuff or get all of the supports that you might need, it's, uh, it's a moot point. And, uh, I think that's what we're trying to do here is make sure that we provide that peer based support and, uh, engage people in as much meaningful activity outside of, of just the 12 step rooms as we can. Yeah, for sure. I think it was really cool how he, I mean, stated some obvious things, right? Treatment works for some people. Counseling works for some people. 12 step works for some people. But when he started talking about the efficacy and the, and the success rates within 12 step, and then you add in counseling or treatment, obviously you're going to, I increase. don't know what efficacy means. <laughs> we'll Google that after. <laughs> but I mean, that's the All piece, right? Academics. That, that we're trying to do here at OCJ is build that safe space to connect with somebody based on our experience. Right. And he talked about that. That's that peer support, that lived experience is a huge piece to connect with people. And we're not trying to say that we're going to, that's where it ends for us. Right. It's never been like that, but it's like, let's build that connection, which is part of his chime model, which he talks about and a healthcare model, build the connection, give people hope. And then we start working on their identity and start connecting them to the pieces that they need in their recovery journey. Yeah. It's wild. And if it's 12 step, like you said, Rick, you have to address the the main crisis issue, which is the addiction piece at the start in order to f- figure out all the other stuff that you have to replace in that burning building. Right. Well, that's just it. If you're, if you don't put the fire out, you're not going to replace the inside. Yeah. And, and, and you got no chance, you know, you, you don't even know, you don't even know what's wrong, right? Like you, to start trying to deal with whatever, whatever that is. If, you know, if there is trauma, if there is mental health issues, like uh, just physical health, all of it, if, if, if you don't address the addiction and the substance use, good luck of even figuring out what you're dealing with. Right. It's like, let's, you know, that's where I, that's, that's, I guess my philosophy is 12 step will get us to a, a a benchmark, right? Mm -hmm. Let's, let's remove the substance. Let's see where you're at. Let's get you through the 12 step process. And a lot of that stuff that you might think you have, I know like there's a ton of people that come into those rooms that have been diagnosed ADHD, bipolar, depression. And a lot of that stuff goes away once, uh, once the substance use is dealt with, but for some, a lot of it stays. Right. Right. But at least if we can remove, 
remove that, it gets us to a stable baseline that we can start looking at, okay, now what's left, whether it's physical health, whether it's mental health, whether it's finance, uh, housing, like, you know, there's a million factors that go in after that, but let's, you don't got to hope and even start until we get to a benchmark. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I found. And I continue to find working with people, right? Is that like you talked about that benchmark and being able to, to remove the substance clears up a lot of those issues for some people, right? Not everybody. I mean, some people definitely are going to need psychiatry and all these things, right? But it's like substance-induced ADHD or substance-induced, anybody who comes off um, any kind of uh, stimulant is going to go through a bout of depression, almost guaranteed, right? I know I still am, (laughs) seven years later, still taking medication. But um, I really love his concept of you know, we talk about all the time that recovery is possible and we're two examples of it, right? We were pretty fucked up back in the day and here we are well, in recovery. speak for yourself. Yeah, you were a shining light <laughs> your whole life, weren't you? <laughs> but I love how he said it's not only possible, it's probable when you start putting all these pieces in place. And I love that. Recovery is probable and that's not the message we're getting from various agencies and various other provinces, right? It's fucking crazy what's going on out there right now that recovery, you can't recover if you're an opiate addict. It's abstinence-based recovery is not possible. I'm like, I know a bunch. It is possible. Yeah. <laughs> Come and we'll, we'll introduce you to them. How yeah. is that not possible? The folks that put on this uh, the convention that we were at is an organization called Last Door in, uh, out of BC, out of New Westminster, just an amazing group of people. And uh, shout out to Giuseppe there. He, uh, he'll be a future guest. Um, I seen him post an article that was put out by the uh, the MOH in BC, the chief medical officer, where she clearly laid out, like in her words verbatim, that uh, recovery from opioid addiction is not possible. And it was just shocking. And, and uh, I, I appreciate, you know, Giuseppe and his team there because they, they, didn't, they didn't just tolerate that and shake their head at it. They aggressively are demanding a letter of apology because they've got hundreds, if not thousands of examples of recovery is possible. And, and like you said, Ryan, and like Dr. Best said, not only is it possible, it's probable if you put all the right pieces in place. That's exactly it. Right. And, oh my gosh, that lit me up reading that. And they, and they distinctly, you know, in that, in that letter, she talks about how, we know that abstinence is, especially in the same ways that we did it with alcohol, just doesn't work for people who have a dependency on opioids. And I'm like, how is that even something that came out of a professional's mouth? Yeah. Oh my God. Anyway, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too much farther today because we only have a few more minutes. But And I'm in a good mood. That just blows me up. I'm like, anytime you want to see the evidence-based results, come and find us and we'll take and introduce you to people that are the evidence that you are able to recover from opioid addiction. For sure. There's a lot of, you know, professionals that'll cite papers and cite uh, different materials and authors for their proof of their theory. But I can actually introduce you to the people that yeah. are proof of ours. That's so. our data. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's our so data's true. got names. <laughs> uh and I love how, you know, and I've, I've been reading some of his papers. I have one of his books here, which is an amazing book. If anybody's out there and wants to read it, I'll put it in the notes. But um, he talks about the recovery model and, and being in treatment myself at different points in my life, right? It is deficit-based. They want to see what you're missing and we're going we're gonna to try to put Band-Aids on those things or try to, through CBT and whatever else you're doing, you're, you're trying to build that up a bit, right? But it was never strength-based. And I love that recovery model he's talking about and how... 
it's strength-based. We're going to build on those strengths. And that's what we've been talking about since day one is let's focus on what you're doing right, not what you're doing wrong. We know what the problem is. What's the solution type thing. And then uh, that it doesn't happen. Recovery doesn't happen in a facility, right? That's the acute care. That's let's put out the fire. Recovery happens in the community. And that's what we've been trying to do since day one here is build this recovery network and build a recovery community and shine the spotlight on recovery. We all know what addiction looks like. We all know how bad it is out there. Yeah. Let's get after it. Start standing up if you're in recovery. I mean, it's everybody's journey is different and what you're comfortable with. But for me, it's like if anybody wants to talk or argue about recovery, I'd rather talk about it than argue. But we, here we are. And, and that's our lane we've decided to stand in is the recovery lane. And man, it's possible. It's probable. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. We, uh, you know, the opportunities that I've had to speak in recovery centers, I, I, one of the common things that I say, right, is 28 day program isn't, you know, you, you don't graduate from this program in 28 days. 28 days is a great start. It's yeah, a gift. The fog lifts. Yeah. You, you have a gift of 28 days to kind of get your shit together and start. It's only the beginning, right? Like, you know, I, I strongly disagree that you've completed the program right. of recovery in 28 days. You, yeah barely scratch the surface. So totally. you've just got your head out of your ass long enough to start looking around. Absolutely. And that goes back to something like our friend Brian talks about, that that's the transaction piece, right? You've, you've paid your money or you've waited your turn on a waiting list. And now all you've done is completed the duration of the 28 days. And like Dr. Best said, now it's taking this out into the community and recovery focused communities and how are we going to build that network, right? Build that social capital and then build that community recovery capital and until people are flourishing in life. And that's where, if Damo, you're listening, man, that's where Damo thrives when yeah. you talk about this kind of stuff, right? It's not, we're not talking about the acute fix or the acute treatment of addiction because granted that's necessary, right? But we're talking about long-term recovery and always having recovery focus and what can we do next or what can, who can we connect with next to add people into somebody's recovery network? Because it is a journey and man, you're never, when you think you're there at the end and you know it all, you better watch out because <laughs> I think a relapse isn't far off in your future when you know it all. Cause it was for me. Well, and, and speaking about what's next, I think, uh, what's next is probably a sandwich. So <laughs> Rick loves sandwiches. I, I got to share this. We were in Calgary yesterday morning and it's 9am in the morning. And he's like, well, guess we're going to Mr. Sub. <laughs> like, dude, it's, you want a foot long at 9am for breakfast? And I got to say it was pretty good actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. So my friend Rick does know a thing or two about sandwiches. So if anybody needs a a, a little insight on sandwiches. Well, it was funny. I walked in and this old timer sat there. I'm like, hey, I know you. You own this place, don't you? You've Four, owned it for like 40, 47 years. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, exactly 47 years. I'm like, yeah, you even got the original franchise agreement. And he's just looking at me. I'm like, yeah. I'm a, I like sandwiches. I'm uh, invested. Rick, so there might be a recovery sandwich shop going up in Medicine Hat at some point. Anybody wants, we got any investors, anybody wants in on this, you just let us know. Yeah, there you go. Like uh, the doctor was talking about uh, recovery, recovery-based uh, businesses, florists and, and uh, supermarkets, and maybe, maybe, just maybe a sandwich shop. <laughs> right on. Stay tuned. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. 
Please consider supporting OCJ by visiting ourcollectivejourney.ca and clicking donate. All proceeds go to supporting the health and wellness of people in our community. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Thank you for listening. Thank you.